You are listening to the Five Acre Parables Podcast. All right, and welcome back to the Five Acre Parables Podcast. We have, we, I have finally gotten over my fear of putting this content out to the world. And we finally, thanks to my wife taking over and doing all the editing so I don't have to listen to my voice again, we finally have two podcast episodes. How does it feel to be a professional, Andrew? Uh, It feels great. Well, we've been getting some some good responses and some people taking the time to listen and to message. And so we want to start off this episode by saying thank you for listening to us ramble. We appreciate it. So, uh, as way of an introduction, this is Daniel Meinson and Andrew House yet again talking about homesteading and the scriptures. I do want to mention one thing that we have not talked about at all that I'm going to make Andrew do. Uh, Andrew has a YouTube channel that is separate from all of this that he posts homesteading content on Andrew would you plug yourself please yeah the channel's name is ugly apple homestead um i don't remember how many videos that i have up but um a lot quite a few uh just basic stuff that i want my kids to be able to uh, hear from me how to do stuff what's worked what doesn't work what the garden looks like Uh, If I get hit by a train and die, they can go back and look at those things and have access to that content that I can no longer give them was kind of the idea behind starting it. And so uh, I do reviews of things that I haven't seen reviews of, uh, raspberry varieties, persimmon varieties, tomatoes in the garden, stuff like that. Also, what we're planning to do with fencing, with animals, that sort of thing. My most successful video, ironically, was one that I thought like a half dozen people would see. I made a metal squirrel skinner that you hang the squirrel's feet in and the squirrel's head in to give you an extra hand while you're skinning a squirrel. And yeah, I don't remember how many views it has now. I thought it would be like six, maybe seven. I was just going to send it to a few people and thought no one else in the world would care. And Yeah, I think last time I looked, it was getting near 90,000 views. I've had all sorts of people tell me how terrible of a job I do skinning and not talking into the camera and a million other things, but also a lot of good feedback of people that are genuinely interested in it. And so it's just, it's interesting what people find, find interesting out of all the stuff that I put up there. It's not what I thought it would be. 83,000 views on that one video. Oh, I thought it was even higher. And whenever it hits the fall, it starts to climb again. Whenever the weather gets really cold or in the springtime when no one's squirrel hunting, it really takes a long pause and then it jumps back up again. Yeah, I, uh, I've i definitely never seen a homesteading channel do reviews on fruit. Andrew's most recent video is the proc. Am I saying that right? Yep. Brock Persimmon Taste Test, um, which only has 88 views. I'm sorry, I didn't. I thought that would do better than that. Nobody cares about persimmons, but they're underrated. They're really fantastic. We we are gonna do we are gonna do a fruit episode, and I'm just gonna sit back and let you nerd out over fruit because I enjoy listening to it. It's not my thing that I really want to take the time to learn, but I love listening to you talk about it. So we're that's coming. I'm sure all of our listeners are going to be very excited for that. I can ramble for a long time about fruit. I, I actually shot another video for a another kind of persimmon that I got for the first time this year called Layman's Delight. There's a really cool backstory I'll tell you in the fruit episode, but um, I only had two fruit on one tree uh, that I grafted a few years ago. And one of them, I like I was watching them like a hawk. Every time I went up and down the driveway, I, I was looking at that persimmon and checking it. And one of them was getting ripe faster than the other. And with American persimmons, you cannot eat them early or they have tannins that cause your mouth to dry out. It's, it, it's astringency. It's terrible. It's not a, not a pleasant feeling. So you want them to be ripe when there's none of that in there. 
Well, one of them was like right there getting close. And then one day it was gone and the deer just ate it, walked up. It was a deer face level and the deer just ate it right off the branch. So the other one I was mm-hmm. leaving for a few days, we were going to be gone from, from home. And that the second one was getting really close. And I said, I'm not going to let a deer steal this while I'm gone. And I picked it early and shot a video of reviewing it and it had too much astringency. Ironically, my kids ate it all and said it wasn't air quote that bad, but it was not nearly what it would have been at its peak. So I messed up. I got to yeah. wait till next year to get a good taste of that one and shoot a video. Uh, the video, just to just to let people know, the video that I found the most interesting, also another one of your top performers, although not as top performing as the uh, squirrel skinner, is the making hay bales with a homemade wooden crate. Yep. I'm actually in the process of trying to set up to do that. Uh, this is not the right time of year for that, but I'm trying it anyway, so... You can at least get I'll an get idea of if it, if it works or if you need to fine-tune how... Yep how you do it. Uh, cause I, I had to make some adjustments whenever I first started out doing it there. He also has on his channel. If you are interested in watching trees fall over, <laughs> there's quite a few episodes where trees fall over. Uh, you ought to, you ought to figure out how to do YouTube reels or shorts and just put the, just put the tree falling on the ground into the short. I have accidentally shot short enough videos occasionally that come up as YouTube shorts. And, uh, I had one that got several hundred views of a, uh, Oh, I, at least I think it did. Uh, I had a broody chicken hatch out some chicks and they were just doing little chicken shenanigans, running around and being cute and stuff. And that that's my most successful YouTube short. Well, hopefully the podcast will help you get some new subscribers. So check out Ugly Apple Homestead. Is that the name of your homestead too? Yep. All right. Ugly Apple Homestead on YouTube. If you're interested in fruit, squirrel skinning, and trees falling over. And they're very good videos. And subscribe and ring that bell or whatever the YouTubers say. All right. Uh, Real quick, before we get into tonight's topic, uh, anything else exciting you've been up to in the past few weeks? I have started on a new section of split rail fence. That's exciting. (laughs) I'm working on building, uh, and I should put it, make a YouTube channel and put it on there, but I'm not going to probably, but I'm building what I keep calling the ultimate homesteading vehicle. I'm rebuilding a 1994 Chevy Suburban. Yep. I've been working on it for nine months and maybe I'll get it done by next year. I don't know. So tonight's show topic uh, was something we kind of alluded to in a previous episode. I can't remember which one it was, but Andrew reminded me of it. And it's definitely one that has not only homesteading connotations, but spiritual connotations as well. Uh, And you may have seen that the title of this episode is The Myth of Self-Sufficiency. Self-Sufficient. Andrew, do you think that you are self-sufficient on your homestead? Not even close. Yeah, same here. Until you make everything yourself, you are not self-sufficient. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of people talking about wanting to be self-sufficient. I think that maybe on the downward trend a little bit but yeah especially over the past few years a lot of people come out like i want to be self-sufficient i want to grow all my own food and do all my own this and all my own that and it's a good concept but it's entirely impossible it is it's entirely unattainable it's been i think you're right i think it's kind of losing popularity a little bit but for quite a few years now it's been a buzzword and and something everybody was trying to aspire to is to be completely self-sufficient. But the problem with that is humanity has never been completely self-sufficient short of uh, a few people in close proximity to the ocean where they are not growing things. They are harvesting and foraging things that the ocean is providing. And so for the vast majority of us, for you and me in the Midwest, uh, we don't have an ocean to go throw nets into and gather fish consistently. So it's really, for the vast majority of people, it is unattainable. 
and really part of this uh this kind of sounds when we say it this way it kind of sounds like a straw man argument but i really want our listeners to think about what true self-sufficiency would look like if you everything you needed you provided you would not be allowed to go to any store whatsoever or get any help from anybody else. And a lot of times nowadays, whenever people are talking about being self-sufficient, I mean, just think about um, basic utilities, Mm -hmm. water. If your well pump goes out, you can't provide your own well pump. Like unless you're going to build a, a, big turny thing out of wood and make a bucket yourself with metal you harvest on your own land and then dip the bucket down in the water and bring it up. You are going to have to bring in a pump from somewhere else that someone else makes. And electricity is a big one too. Uh, Being off grid is also um, very Mm -hmm. popular right now. That's maybe something we should talk about in a, a different episode of being on grid versus off grid, what the pros and cons are. But whenever people go off grid with solar, for example, you aren't making those batteries. You aren't making those solar panels. You have to depend on somebody else to bring in things. And if you're looking at like lithium ion batteries, we can't even get lithium for the most part here in the U S we're shipping that in from an entirely different country. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that bugged me and I don't want to talk too bad about him because, uh, a really great guy i cannot remember his name but the guy from missouri wind sun and solar uh there in seymour missouri who spoke at the homesteading conference he kept using that term he kept saying if you want to be self-sufficient you need to do this with your this with your power supply this with your power supply this with your power supply and i think that that term maybe maybe what that term means to some people versus what it really truly implies um maybe they don't comprehend it but yeah they have to get every single piece of that from somebody else if they were going to be truly self-sufficient they would be crafting all of those things by themselves um a youtube channel if you want to see exactly how hard this process is there is a guy uh and he's not a homesteader but i love his videos he is called how to make everything have you seen that i haven't looked him up at all Okay, he is actually, and again, he's trying to do that. He's trying to replicate in some small form and fashion kind of the history of invention is what he's attempting to do. And the challenges that he faced, he's very open and honest. I'm not being mean to him. I'm just repeating the things that he says. You know, he's the things that he's trying to do. And he's actually gone out and collected ore and tried to smelt it. He's cut his own tree down, you know, with a tool that he created. Uh, He's built his, one of his most recent videos was building a homemade sawmill, which you would find that interesting. Yep. But it's compared to what you have, it's just so slow. But he was sawing his own boards to make the water wheel to power the sawmill. And just the amount of work that it takes for him to do just that one project makes you really sit down and think what the definition of self-sufficiency should be. Yep. Now, in homesteading, is there areas, areas, specific areas that we can be self-sufficient in? Do you think that there are some areas, if we were to narrow it down and say we want to be self-sufficient in certain areas, what do you think that we could do that in? Um, we, we can, but I would encourage people to find out what works the best for them, what they're the best at, uh, producing since we're talking about homesteading, what they're the best at producing and then figure out how to use their excess of what they produce to trade, barter, or sell to get what they cannot produce. So the things that we can can supply ourselves is going to vary greatly by region. We're speaking mostly to people from the Midwest at this point, but in the Midwest, we can't grow things that grow well in the in the deep south. We can't uh, we can't grow 
canna lilies consistently. We can't grow bananas. We can't grow citrus. Things that I would love to grow, we just cannot supply those things here because they won't survive in our climate without a ton of babying. But, and again, you could put them in a greenhouse, but then you're building the greenhouse and where does that material come from? Right. And with um, frost sensitive things like citrus, if your greenhouse loses heat one night, everything dies. You start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what we can produce or produce here is going to vary a little bit, even uh, at my place from your place, just because of how the land is structured and how the soil is. Uh, Kansas is known for growing grain. Um, you can grow grain here where I'm at in the hills, but traditionally people only grew it on the ridge tops, and I don't have a whole lot of ridge top to work with. Um, what people did in my situation is raise hogs because hogs could forage in the oak forests and the the savannas where fields met trees and they could provide enough forage for the most part for pigs to do pretty well but in kansas you don't see people doing that a whole lot unless they have a feedlot operation because they're set up to grow grains because you have prairie soil Mm -hmm. and so figure out what was traditionally grown in your area and lean into that pretty hard because there's a reason the old timers around here were growing tomatoes in my area. They, they grew really well. They could produce a really nice crop. And Springfield, north of here, was actually the tomato canning factor, the tomato canning capital of the world at one point in like the 30s, 40s, and even up into the 50s. And then it started to really go downhill. There's actually a a really cool YouTube video that shows the history of canning in the Ozarks and why that started to go away eventually. But um, in Kansas, it's a little bit different animal. People have been growing corn and beans and sunflowers for so long out there because the soil is fantastic and it's flat for the most part. And it really leans in well to uh, being plowed Mm -hmm. and and used for annual crops. Now. I, I believe personally that you can grow, you can be self-sufficient in that you can grow all the major food groups that you need to survive. I believe that that's physically possible almost anywhere you're at. Not entirely, but almost anywhere you're at. I think you can grow enough major food groups to survive. But when you're talking about complete health, a complete picture of health or whatever the case may be, you know, and if you want variety at all, you know, you could lean really heavily into, into one type of meat, one type of starch, one type of, you know, uh, of each of these food groups that we have, and you could do it, but you're just trying to combine the same five ingredients night after night. And that gets really old. It gets old in a hurry. Especially because I believe that one of the reasons that God gave us all of these different types of food is because he knew that that would be something that we would enjoy, that we would take pleasure in. And so if you're just doing all of that, but do you do you believe or do you agree with me that you could grow all the major food groups you had to survive if you really wanted to? I, 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 I don't want to give an answer without thinking about it for a minute because I'm trying to go through all the different growing regions that we have just in our country and think Mm -hmm. if that is possible. I think it is. I think it is. The only places that you would have to wonder about would be like in the far north. But even in the far north, the way that their growing seasons work, they're able to grow an incredible amount of potatoes, for instance, Yes. And get enough grains to get by to cover your your basic food groups, which the food pyramid being right or wrong is a whole different argument, too. Sure. But, yeah, I I think you you can definitely cover basic staples because if you weren't able to cover basic staples, humanity couldn't survive prior to industrial agriculture and trucking. Sure. We have seen some of the ridiculous regions, if you go back and look at history at all, where people lived and even thrived in hard-to-live spots. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I 
after thinking about it for a second, I think you're right. You, you can cover your basic food groups if you set out to do it and you had enough land to do it. I think people really underestimate how much space it takes to grow enough food for you to live for a year. Yes, uh, especially the grain production. Uh, if you have the opportunity, which I haven't done this, but I have watched a bunch of YouTube videos on this. Grow a section of grain, grow a section of wheat or barley or something like that in your yard or in your garden and see exactly how much of that it takes to make one basic loaf of bread. Grain is actually an incredibly uh, inefficient way of doing that at some points in time. Yeah, it, it's incredible how much space and time and effort goes into, like you said, one single loaf of grain of bread. So I just looked up, this is the food pyramid, which we can, I don't have any opinion on that. So you can argue about that later if you want to, but fruits and vegetables, potatoes, bread, rice, pasta, and other carbohydrates, beans, fish, eggs, meat, and other proteins, dairy and alternatives, oils, and spread. I think you could do that if you really, really tried, but again, you'd have to focus in on like one or two of each of them and that wouldn't give you very much variety. Yeah. So also if, if somebody's getting into homesteading, homesteading is popular and there's a lot of new people doing it now. Mm -hmm. Whenever you go into homesteading, I think you should be very clear on what your goals are in production, because if you are trying to do just being more self-sufficient is how you should phrase that growing as much of your own food as is possible, then you are going to get, you're going to get really bored of potatoes. I mean, there's only so many ways you can fix it with stuff you can prepare yourself on your own homestead. And so boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Exactly. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> but you, you have to be clear on what you're doing. I am not interested in trying to grow as much of our own food as possible. I am, I am setting up perennial tree systems slowly to be able to do that if we had to, but to utilize them in other ways in the meantime, unless the Chinese invade and the grid goes down, you know, but I focus mainly on growing things I can't get anywhere else. You cannot go to the store and get a fresh, tree-ripened American persimmon. You can't. You just can't get them anywhere because they don't ship at all. They, they're too soft and they don't handle it well. You cannot hardly, I can't say you can't at all now because uh, Elizabeth found some at Sam's, but you can't hardly get fresh figs in southwest Missouri. You just can't hardly do it. And so I'm leaning into things that you can't get at the store that are worth growing because I like them. And so that's an entirely different animal from being self-sufficient. And there's nothing sure. wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. Our, our goal has been different, but again, it's not better or worse. It just is what it is. Our goal has been looking for ways to decrease our grocery bill. Yeah. Cause I, you know, a lot of the people in our space love to talk about, you know, and I know you were just choking, but they love to talk about the Chinese invading or the zombie apocalypse or, you know, the grid down nuclear winter, all that kind of stuff. The real crisis, in my opinion, and this is a this is a whole other topic, is economic issues. And so our goal has just been what can we do to decrease our grocery bill? I want I want to have not only a fairly quick break even point, but I want to either make money or make a large quantity of groceries that we do not have to dish money out on. Hence why we've leaned pretty heavily. Uh, we had so many tomatoes this year. We had chickens. And then last year, the cows all really helped with that goal. Yeah. Of we've got huge chunks of grocery we haven't bought beef in like six months six or eight months and it's coming up on hunting season and i plan on you know a lot of my friends are all out there and again it's their hobby i'm not trying to put it down but they're out there just wanting to get a big buck i'm like how many does can i get just for the meat 
Yep. Because when you do it, when you do it right, hunting can be a very cheap, quick, easy way of making or, or providing uh, good quality meat for your family. And you don't have to pay the grocery store to do that. Yeah, you're right. From a um, preparedness st- standpoint, it's hard to talk about people trying to be self-sufficient and not talk about preparedness for like emergency situations and stuff. But for as far as preparedness goes, I don't want people to think that hunting is a long-term solution for preparedness because if you go back in time, oh man, how, how long ago? 80, 90 years. You can, I mean, you can go back before, you can go back before the great depression and it was this way too. And it just continued to be that way post great depression, but deer were almost non-existent in Southwest Missouri. I mean, I have to put up an electric fence now to keep deer out of my garden because we have so many. When I walk out to do chores in the dark sometimes with a headlamp on, I have to yell at the deer to get them to get out of my orchard and quit eating my stuff. We have deer around (laughs) here so much to the point that it's hard to imagine them not being here. But it was a special, special thing to shoot a deer back in the 1960s. And so... Like if you have, again, the Chinese invade, the grid goes down, whatever happens and the hunting seasons are gone, there's no rules or regulations on maintaining a deer herd, then the deer population, this is just a number I pull out of thin air, but I predict the deer population would be virtually gone in 10 years and it would be down significantly much earlier than that. They'd just be much harder to find because the numbers would be fewer. We're in a situation right now where people don't realize we're in a crisis situation. Yeah, They're too busy being pointed overseas at the crisis over there to realize what's going on at home. And so while the majority of the population is unaware, is a good time to take advantage of the hunting. Yeah, absolutely. Which is where I'm at right now. So Yeah, shoot them, shoot them while we're here, while, while they're here. Yeah. Shoot them while they're available. Save your money and use it to get something else. Because again, now back to our original thing, you're going to still have to make money. Yep. That is that is a predominant form of currency. Most people today do not really or are, are do not really or are not really interested in bartering at all. Uh, that's not a thing that many people do. We pretty much only speak in money to some degree. So while we got it. That's the tool. That's the main tool that we use. Uh, I guess it it would be wise at this point to kind of transition over to in this arena and in this, what, what should we be attaining? If we're not going to be attaining self-sufficiency, I think we've hopefully proved that point. Yeah. And, and before we, before we, before we start leaning into what we should be, trying to attain, I wanted to read something from the book 1491. Uh, it's about Native Americans prior to uh, European contact. I don't remember the guy that wrote it, but it's a super long, boring book full of really good snippets. <clears throat> but he's talking about the um, the Native Americans that lived by the Andes. They were not self-sufficient. They didn't have communities that did everything. Uh, They had people that lived by the ocean. They got fish and and shellfish. You had people that lived in the foothills that grew quinoa grain. Then you had people in the river valleys further up that grew beans and squash. And then you had the herdsmen up in the mountains raising alpacas and llamas. And so the people in the mountains with the llamas would send llama jerky down and get beans and squash back up. And that's just one little example of how the Andean communities functioned is they grew or maintained or or harvested what they had access to and did really well and then traded it for things they couldn't get. So they weren't stuck eating beans and squash all the time. They could get rid of excess and eat meat or fish that they had traded for. And that, that's true up in North America, too, prior to European contact. There are old um, Indian 
uh, arrowhead nappers made out of copper mined in southern Canada in the southern Midwest. Well, how did that get there? They traded for it because they didn't have copper and they liked the copper better than using bone. And so even the, the Native Americans that existed here prior to Europeans coming over, they didn't live in self-sufficient communities for the most part. They had bartering, they had trading, they did the same stuff that we are talking about and encouraging people to do. So, especially armed with that, because I do, you know, a lot of people really, when they think about the Native Americans, they really only think about, like, what has been portrayed in TV and movies. Uh, so, kind of moving away from that idea, and I, and I would also say before we move away from that, a lot of people have this idea because that's what the, the doomsday preppers do on the TV shows is they try to be, we're going to stock up on everything we possibly need, but they never really recover or they never really cover. How are they going to uh, resupply or restock? Yes. They have 10 years of beans in their basement. What happens when those run out or what happens when they accidentally, you know, cause some of them to go bad how are they getting more they never really cover that absolutely and that's where homesteading comes in is really building up that lifestyle before we even need it so getting away from that idea of completely self-sufficient lifestyle give me your overview of what you think we should be going for instead so I would encourage people that are getting into homesteading or even have a backyard in town that have a, a, a little bit of room to lean pretty hard into perennial agriculture systems. So grow a nut tree, grow a long-lived pest-resistant, disease-resistant fruit tree, put in an asparagus patch. I have way too much asparagus on our place because it grows well in the beds I have set up on our hillside and I love asparagus. We will eat all the asparagus that we grow here. So put in things that will live 10, 20, 30 years or in the case of trees, hundreds of years and it's a lot less work and there are systems you can put in around those trees to still grow corn or squash or beans and do alley cropping or row cropping and use those perennials as well. And also don't try to force something that works in a different location in your location. If you have tried corn and no one around you has ever grown corn and you can't get corn to grow, which is hard to believe because corn is so versatile, but don't force that. Find out what grows in your location and lean into it pretty hard. That's going to take a little bit of experimentation, uh, but start with some of the staples, some good old uh, dry beans. Dry beans are cheap, but you can get better ones that you grow at home that taste better, and corn varieties that do well for your situation, heavy clay soil or really sandy soil, and get some of the staple crops at least stocked up so if anything ever did happen and you needed it or if you're leaning into trying to knock down that grocery bill what produces well while being more sustainable than going and buying hybrid seed at the store every year so really really focusing in on um Things that continue to to update themselves. Also, really, this idea of, you know, if you're growing these things yourself, looking for which exact one works best and which one doesn't uh, out of the individual plants. If you grow 10 tomato plants and you're seeing one of them give better fruit than the rest of them, keep the seeds out of the one and don't keep the seeds out of the rest of them. Absolutely. You know, start to... Start to start to really lean into what works well on your property. Um, there's so much I've seen, and this is something I love where I'm nowhere near this yet. And with the trees in my yard, I don't know if I'll ever be, but these people that are turning their quarter acre lot on in the city or in the suburb or whatever, they're turning the entire thing, ripping up all the lawn and turning it all into some sort of, 
some sort of food production and they're getting really creative as to what they're doing there you know not just we're turning up our entire lawn and growing 120 tomato plants yeah. but they're getting really creative with their landscaping and what they choose uh, to put in there instead of just basic boring old lawn grass it's crazy how much food that these people can grow in the middle of the city they're growing you know, with just some work, they're growing way more than we are at this point. Yeah. The, if, if you are serious about trying to cut down on your grocery bill or be as self-sustainable as possible, as far as food goes, you have to look into intensive gardening as well, because that's a little bit different animal than just the, you know, the lackadaisical, this works here. I'm, I'm not trying to cram as many plants into my garden as possible but that also takes a lot of inputs a lot of the time they're trucking in you know dump trailer loads of compost to mix into their soil to keep that production up we have to be realistic and when we're talking about sustainability it all boils down to what you can get from the soil and if you're raising animals what the soil can give your animals that they can then give to you your soil is not going to be able to maintain production if you keep planting tomatoes in the same spot forever and ever and ever and never doing anything to replenish the soil. So that's something people that are talking about sustainability don't think about sometimes. You have to have a plan in place to be able to replenish your soil or you're never, your soil is going to get worn out. That's why back in the day, I mean, we're talking 200 years ago, there was a huge westward expansion in America. It wasn't because people were just feeling adventurous. They had worn out the soil on their farms and had to push west to new soil because they didn't have the inputs to put in to maintain production. And so for people that aren't looking to just continue to move around forever and find new land to grow stuff on, that's something you're going to have to think about. Have, have some system in of utilizing manure rotational grazing or something to replenish your soil or you're going to be okay for a year or two for production and then your production is going to slump off pretty bad i was going to describe and you can i think you do this a little bit better than we do so definitely add on anything you want to but really one of the simplest systems just involves having chickens and doing compost with the chickens, having them do the work for you. You throw in all of your extra scraps, all of your extra lawn clippings or whatever else, you throw that in with them and let them turn it up and turn it into compost for you. And then this is the part that people don't like to to hear, but you shovel it out of there and you put it on the garden after a certain point. And then that garden that that is used to grow greater crops in turn which you can take those and put those right back in with the chickens those chickens are providing if you do it right they're providing eggs and you can have fresh chicken every once in a while so there's your food there's three of your food groups right there you got meat and eggs and vegetables so um but Going even farther past just food production, I think really one of the greatest things that we've been seeing, and we talked about this uh, last episode, seeing some people start working on these different forms of community, of homesteading community. I think ultimately what you need to be doing is you need to be interfacing with your neighbors. And for a lot of us, that involves getting off our phones and talking to our neighbors which does not happen as much as it should. But learning what they do and them learning what you do, they can be a potential source of uh, you selling your products and they may have something extra that you could just take money out of the equation and just trade. If your neighbor has more eggs than you that day, they can give you a few eggs. You can give them some tomatoes from the garden. Everybody goes home happy. But building up that community, especially because when when it truly comes down to it, we need people with all sorts of different skills available. You know, and as much as I try to, I cannot learn to fix everything in the world. And you just need help from other people. Absolutely. There's a um, there's a side benefit once you kind of kind of hit on a little bit. Something people don't think about is we're talking about 
uh, leaning toward being self-sustainable while not being able to attain it. Corn is like one of the most heavily dependent on crops traditionally in America and in big agriculture today. It still is just in different ways than it was traditionally. And if there was ever a need uh, for people to try to be as self-sufficient out of necessity rather than desire, corn would again become very important. But something people don't really know about corn is if you keep seed out of your own 100 by 100 foot corn patch every year or one acre corn patch or two acre corn patch, you start getting inbreeding depression. Things quit producing as well because with corn especially, it's most noticeable. You get inbreeding depression where the genetics need shaken up. They need new genes introduced. And so you need to have a neighbor that he can say, this is the seed from my best corn. Give me some of the seed of your best corn. You swap corn and both of your crops get a new boost in the next generation of new genetics. And so all of a sudden you get hybrid vigor and your corn starts doing much better. And again, you need more neighbors down the road that you guys can share your seed with later. But if you just plan to keep your own corn and and just keep using your own corn from your own patch, you're eventually going to run into inbreeding depression. Same thing goes for animals. If you're trying to be self-sufficient with animals, eventually, if you're running cows, you're going to need, need a new bull. If you're running pigs, you're going to need a new boar. And so you have to have somebody, some connection to some community where you can bring in new genetics. And that's that's important to think of in the long term. We tend to think more in the short term, but in the long term, you need that community to ever have a hope of being anywhere near self-sustainable. So really self-sufficiency, you're almost forced to by the way that God has created these things. You are almost forced to interact with other people. Yeah. So really what we would encourage people to to look into is to not just be like, I'm going to be self-sufficient. I'm going to get everything off of my own land because even if you have 80 acres, it just, it's just not happening. So really what we want to encourage people to do is to build community, to start looking around for people who are with the same ideas and the same thinking as you, but with different different things as well. And starting to get away from the supermarket. I mean, you know, back in the day, this is the way that it was done. And it partially needs to be the way to some degree that it's done again. As much as possible, sharing food among people and helping each other out. So really, the the Bible portion for tonight is really almost exactly the same thing because i know many men and maybe andrew feels this way too i don't know but you know we get these urges every once in a while where we just want to go live in a cabin in the woods and not see other people for a long time i don't know have you ever felt that way before oh yeah um the worst thing about people is they're annoying and i know that i guarantee that i annoy people too But God has called us to work in community and to not be self-sufficient. In fact, I mean, built within the very way that the church operates, there is not self-sufficiency, as much as some people would like to try to say that there is. I get I get a lot of people that will tell me a lot of a lot of guy friends that will tell me, oh, I worship God out in the deer stand by myself and all that and. That's good that they're thinking about those things at that time. But they're also ignoring the command that we have to meet with and interact with other people. And we have responsibilities to our fellow Christians as well as as well as they have responsibilities to us. God set up the church in a very specific way to be supportive of one another. Um, the easiest passage that, that jumped into my mind was uh, Galatians 6 and verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to share in the, the troubles of our fellow Christians and support them in whatever way we can. 
if you are isolating yourself, I mean, I spent years of my life as a, as a young, young man wanting to be a my side of the mountain style mountain man that ran away into the forest and never came back, you know. But as I got older, I realized God called us to be a part of a community, to be a part of a group of people, both locally and worldwide, that supported one another in times of need. And people in the church have been there for me whenever I needed it. And whenever I see an opportunity uh, to serve, I am more than happy to try to fulfill this command to help our fellow Christians, because I know others have paid me back in advance by helping me out when I needed it. And I know people will help me out in the future whenever I need it. And so there, there's a reason God and in his infinite wisdom set us up to not be isolated in a, in a sanctuary, like a monk stuck in a, in a spot on a, a mountainside where no one is at. The very first thing that we learn about man in scripture is that God saw that he was very good. And the second thing that we learn about man in scripture is that it is not good for us to be alone. Yeah. That is why God created helpers for us. And that is, of course, the wives. But that principle but goes beyond just the husband and wife relationship. It's just not good for a man to be alone. Yeah. For mankind is what I'm saying. I'm not talking about men specifically, although that's true too. But mankind, we are not isolationist creatures as much as we may want to be, as much as we may idolize and look up to people who can be to some degree. Uh, that's just not the way that we are built. That's just not the way that we are supposed to interact. Um, so much of those scriptures is about not only how to build community, but to how to maintain that community. Yep. The majority of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all laws, not only about how they're going to interact with God, but how they're going to interact with each other. Yeah. Because that was just going to happen. There was no way that God was going to let even these tribes split up. They were together at that point, and they were supposed to be together and working together and providing things for each other and helping each other out. Yeah, absolutely. God set up the tribe of Israel as an example through the law of Moses of how they were supposed to treat each other. And by, by the time you get to the time of Jesus and then hundreds of years prior to that, the Jews had messed up by trying to boil down the law of Moses to just a strict list of rules of this is what I can and cannot do in this situation. And Jesus and the, the greatest sermon ever, according to a, a whole lot of people, and it's hard to argue with it in the sermon on the Mount. The first thing Jesus does uh, is he gives them the beatitudes and starts to reset their thinking on what a, a proper spiritual person looks like. It's not a Pharisee, it is a person that is meek, is humble, that is pure in heart. Then he goes on and starts giving them a bunch of different teachings. And he starts by saying, you have heard it said. And a lot of the things he says are direct quotes out of the old law. The problem was people had misused the old law to say, well, you shall not commit adultery. But as long as I don't commit adultery, that's okay. You know, I as long as I don't do the physical act of being intimate with another man's wife, I can look at her and lust after her in my heart. But Jesus went beyond that and said, you've missed the point. I am telling you not to even lust after a person in your heart. And so whenever you look at how they had misused the law of Moses, it's, it's really a shame because God was trying to teach them, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, be a part of that community, and treat others how you want to be treated. And they had misused the law of Moses to boil it down to a, a, a list of things you can and can't do. And they had a bunch of loopholes to try to get around that. They'd really missed the point that God had tried to get across. Love God first. 
love your neighbor second. And that's the reason Jesus could say on those two commandments hang the entire law. And that is actually where I was heading next was with that ultimate commandment, those two commands working in conjunction with each other. If we take a self-sufficiency mindset, either in homesteading preparedness or in the church, if we take that self-sufficiency mindset too far and we don't acknowledge people as our neighbor, then there's nobody we can fulfill that command with. And therefore we are ignoring an entire section of scripture. I mean, those commands are not optional as in, if you have a neighbor, if you have somebody you want to get close to, here's how you do it. It is, you are going to do this. You're going to have people, whether you like it or not. And these people are going to have you in their life, whether they like you or not. So better start learning to like each other. To me, it ultimately boils down. And I always say this, especially when people within the church are fighting, because we tend to. We tend to do that because we are still human, uh, but I always refer back to the idea of, you know, we're expected to spend eternity together. Well, we better start getting along here. Absolutely. You know, it makes no sense to say, well, we're going to hate each other the entire time on earth, and then we're not going to worry about it at all in heaven. Absolutely. No, that, that hatred and separation from other people is going to, if we are not careful, it is going to keep us out of heaven. Absolutely. My grandma had a saying that uh, if we can't get along here, how do we expect to get along in heaven? Which is yeah. uh, just a paraphrase of what you said already. And your grandma's probably wiser than I am. <laughs> I, I also thought of Psalm 127 because a lot of people that have this homestead, I'm going to be self-sufficient and, and I can take care of myself in every way mentality tend to also carry that over into the spiritual realm and mm -hmm. we in our in our day-to-day -day lives can get caught up in forgetting how much we need god like we've been talking about the church mostly up and up and to this point but yes although let let me say real quick the amount of homesteaders that i've seen that do home church as well not because of location, but because they refuse to acknowledge anybody else is doing the right thing is astounding to me. It is disproportionately high for some reason. I think you're right. Yeah. But it, it reminded me of Psalm 127 too. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of the anxious, of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, I tend to focus more on verse three, talking about children being a heritage of the Lord next, but that part about God being the foundation on which everything we do is, he is the necessary foundation for our lives. We can't get caught up in the idea of being self-sufficient and being able to take care of ourselves that we forget that God gives us the soil. God gives us the genetics and the plants that we get. God gives us the air that we breathe and try to exclude him and, and think that we don't need anyone, even God. If you remember, uh, it's just kind of a side note for the people listening. We recorded those other episodes about a month and a half ago, and now we're getting back into recording. But if you remember, we talked about spiritual blessings of homesteading last time. And, you know, we talked about how we believe that it's easier to look outside and see the ways that God is providing. But it also comes with this warning of, you know, if you think that you're doing this, if you don't make it a priority to look at those things that only God can provide, then, yeah, you're going to come into this, uh, this with a mentality of I'm doing this. Look at all the things that I'm doing. Which, as kind of a side note, I would encourage people to take a look at all the things that they've learned and all the ways that they've grown and taking comfort and encouragement from that and, and realize that you are so much more capable than you realize than maybe what the world is telling you of doing these things, of living this homesteading lifestyle. But also understanding the reason why we're able to sit there and create and to garden is because the master creator and the master gardener 
has shown us how to do it and has given us the pattern that we need to know and we need to follow in all of those things. So instead of taking it and saying, I learned this, I figured this out, we need to be humble enough to say, we're learning all this. And and that's where a lot of this, you know, I learned most of what I learned from YouTube. Yeah. So I can't say that I am, you know, hopefully I'm not presenting myself in this way, but the purpose of this podcast is not to say we are the homesteading experts and we are the church experts, but we're just trying to pass along what little we know and hopefully eventually start to garnish some feedback from it or to gain some feedback from it so that others can share with us what they have learned in all of these different areas. Yeah. Um, it's, I, again, I, I keep having trouble not connecting preparedness with self-sufficiency that the two tend to go hand in hand so much. It's hard for me to separate them when I talk about them, but from a physical standpoint in connection to the spiritual, if you are worried about preparedness, either financially or physically, I think people severely underestimate their need for the church that God has planned in just everyday life, even in our culture where <clears throat> I don't wonder where my next meal comes from. I don't worry about, you know, if, if I'm going to have a home tomorrow because the Philistines come in and have raided us and killed mm -hmm. us all. But if I get hit by a truck, we have emergency savings in place because we, we want to be ready for an accident like that. But the church is there to step in and help provide whenever you are unable. Whenever a family has financial hardship that was unexpected, the church is there to help. Whenever a family can't feed itself, the church is there to step in and help. And whenever the church is struggling as a whole because an entire region is affected, like for any as an example, the church in Jerusalem in the New Testament had a major famine happen. And Paul mm -hmm. wrote to multiple people and talked about how they had sent money so the Christians in Jerusalem could buy food. That is something that is severely underestimated whenever people are talking about self-sufficiency and preparedness is having that support network of fellow Christian believers that are like-minded and love you and willing to sacrifice some of their excess whenever you are in need. That's just, it's priceless and it gives you a peace of mind that is beyond anything you're going to get just from having money in your bank account or a family at, in your house that loves you. Having that additional love and support is something that helps me sleep a lot better at night. I don't have to worry about what happens if I break a leg at work, a log rolls the wrong way and my leg is broken and I can't walk, let alone work. And the money in our bank account eventually runs out. What's going to happen? How are we going to feed ourselves? How are we going to make a mortgage payment? I don't have to worry about that. And so that's something that people need to consider. Some, some people will argue and say, well, that's what insurance is for. But I would go so far as to say that, no, that's what the church is for. That's what the church is designed for. Absolutely. And I'm not saying you can't have insurance, but those things are designed to replace the work of the church ultimately. And so if you're not, if you're not considering the church as part of your preparedness plan, not only for yourself, but you're wanting to help others and be a blessing to others, then you're not, you're not listening to what God is telling you here. You're not doing what is right if you're not considering the church as part of your family and as part of your support in physical situations, but spiritual as well. Absolutely. Ultimately, we need to remember how much we need the blood of Jesus as well, which I know like the vast majority of anybody listening to this knows that, but we tend to get big headed or I, I won't generalize with everybody else. I tend to get big headed and think much more highly of myself than I should whenever I forget how incredibly much I need the blood of Jesus to have any hope of salvation and 
eternity in heaven, you know? And so it remembering how much we need God in a spiritual sense, let alone a physical sense, but especially a spiritual sense. When we remember how much we need God, it mm-hmm. humbles us and it gives us a mind, a mind of service and servanthood that makes the other people around us better off as well, because we're willing to help and be servants that help other people as well. And ultimately, I do not believe that this is the uh, reason you should, the sole reason you should be doing this. But the ultimate preparedness plan is a trust and a relationship in God. Yeah. Because if if your guns and ammo run out, if your crops all fail, um, if your animals all die, everything else, and worst case scenario happens, and your family dies, yet they're in Christ, then we're covered. Yeah. You know, because ultimately this life is just a short temporary thing. And this this ultimate preparedness of I am in Christ, I am with Christ, even if everything I do on this earth fails, Christ will be with me. You know, that 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 talking about things that give you peace of mind, that's that's the number one thing for sure. Yeah, Philippians four seven comes to mind. Uh, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, then you should have a peace that is there no matter what happens. If you get cancer, you still have peace because you're in Christ Jesus. If you lose your job, you still have peace because you're in Christ Jesus. If you are trying to do the best you can at homesteading and your chickens keep dying and your crops keep failing or you experience a record drought and eastern kansas you still have the peace that passes all understanding because you're in christ jesus it completely changes how you view your entire life here on this earth well the last thing i really want to say on this uh, idea of self-sufficiency and kind of blocking yourself off from the world is you know we've talked about some commands that you can't fulfill if you're doing that but one of the main things that god asks you for and i'm not saying in return as in we are trying to pay him back but as a result of or in return for that comfort and peace that he has given us he wants us to share that with other people absolutely Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Mark 16 and verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We can't fulfill that if we are living on a thousand acres in a log cabin and we never come into town. Yep. And so if, (laughs) if you love God, you'll keep his commandments and his commandments say you got to deal with people. Yep. And so, and you, you brought up good points earlier about why people don't like to deal with other people. They can be annoying. They can hurt your feelings. Uh, and that's, that's with people that are fellow Christians and you know, you that are supposed to be like-minded and you have this, this unity in Christ, people are still people and they tend to do things that you don't want them to. And I, I'm, I'm aiming that at me. I know I am annoying. I have hurt people's feelings. I have done all these things because I'm imperfect. But if we love them the way that we're supposed to, and we want everyone else to have that peace that passes understanding and share with them the joy that we have of being Christians, it's going to change our mindset and get us off of that thousand acres in a log cabin and be willing to deal with people because we love other people enough to tell them about Jesus, which is hard to do, especially in a world that doesn't seem to want to listen. But if we have that mindset, that peace, that joy, it will motivate us to do what you're talking about and be willing to interact with people, even though interaction is not always as pleasant as you would desire it to be. Even if there's a straight up, you know, trial or struggle, you know, because a lot of the, the, a lot of the prepper people that I've heard and listened to before, you know, they, they talk about how in these situations, you can't help anybody. You've got to just work on yourself. And yeah, 
I mean, that's the best way to save resources, but that's not what God wants us to do. Yeah. We're called to be self-sacrificial as Christ was self-sacrificial. And so, you know, you, you have to help other people no matter what the situation is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we thank you for taking the time to listen to the Five Acre Parables podcast. I'm Daniel Meinson. I'm Andrew House. It's been great. Thank you all. Uh, we hope to have episodes out semi-regularly. So thank you all for listening and for tuning in. You have been listening to the Five Acre Parables podcast. Thank you.